Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Acts chapter 4, what we have is, and let me bring you up to speed, we have the beginnings of persecution, and it's now happened, and now it's gone. So we have in the setting here in Acts chapter 4, simply the just the very beginning or birth pangs of persecution. And so now this young church that has just come into being is bursting at the seams with literally thousands of Jews who have come to faith, and they have turned from rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah to now receiving him as the promised Messiah and Savior. Remember the Old Testament promise that there would be one who was the anointed one. It was also known, he was also known to be the Messiah. And in the New Testament, the Greek language would translate the Messiah as the Christ. And so these people had now changed from rejecting him to receiving him as Messiah and Savior. In the meantime, in the process of all that, uh, the apostles are preaching, and we have seen multiple instances where the apostles are preaching. Uh, At this point, we had Peter and John, the apostles. They were arrested, and that was what we were considering in my last sermon. Now, what happened to Peter and John, though, was merely the birth pangs or precursor of of what was to come. They were released with a strict warning to stop preaching. But what was it that they were to no longer preach? They were to stop preaching in the name or the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, the result of all of this, of seeing their beloved apostles arrested and then released, the church is filled with thanksgiving uh, because They are now back out of jail, so to speak, but also they are all the more convinced that they had to be bold in preaching the good news of Jesus as Messiah. So understand that that's happening as well. The the, the church, instead of becoming quiet, they actually watch what happens and they're emboldened and they're emboldened by the Spirit to speak all the more. They actually get more stubborn in their conviction that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is what they need to be busy doing. Now, beloved, during this time, it's a good time to be part of the church back then. It was an exciting time. Think about it. It's growing. There are, there's a spirit of thanksgiving among the people. There's apparent unity among the people. And there's even the persecution that's happened is not really that serious. So it was like, ooh, that was scary, but then it's over with. So it's like, well, that wasn't so bad. One thing that they would admit and see is that God is obviously at work, and the apostles are performing many miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a wonderful time. As a result, lives are changed, relationships are healed, spiritual fervency is on the rise. Beloved, it is a good time. If you've ever experienced that in your own life or in the life of a church, you know what I mean, where you look forward to coming church. Everything is wonderful. There's joy in your own heart. You're seeing God work, and and you're just so thankful to be part of the whole situation. But things are going to change, and they will change rather rapidly. Why? Well, the reason is simply that sin is still in the hearts of the people. Sin is in the hearts of the unbeliever, most definitely, but sin is also in the heart of the church, and we will see that worked out here, Lord willing, next week. But not today. Today, what we have is the opportunity to instead watch a young, vibrant church instinctively, and I want to emphasize that, they instinctively 
act out their love for God and their love for one, one another in a very clear, simple, but life-altering manner. So with that in mind, let's read together Acts chapter 4, verses 33 to 37, the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, the Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We are going to think about money today. We're going to think about possessions today, because that's what the text is talking about. There are all all sorts of ways that we can discuss and think about money. We can talk about giving and, and whatnot, but when you look at the New Testament and you look at what the New Testament talks about with regard to money and possessions, it actually ends up talking about it in a very specific manner. And it's one that you and I should actually take the time regularly to reflect on. I, I think we don't. Uh, I think that the bustle of life captures us and we get carried along and, and all of a sudden we're spit out and, and it's the end of another year. I would suspect that most of you cannot really believe it's December and you wonder where the year went and all sorts of intentions that maybe you had at the beginning of the year are gone now and, and it's now ready for another year. But I would even ask you, how often have you ever considered your money, your possessions, in light of eternity. And so in this passage, because that's what we have going on, I want to help you and I think about these things. When we look at the New Testament, as I said, it does it and it discusses these things in a very specific manner. Instead of talking about the the amount, it always focuses on the heart and the motive Forgiving. In other words, the New Testament is much less concerned about how much you're giving and more about the motive of why you give and the heart behind that giving. And that is what is reflected here in our passage. It, it's told actually for us in a story format, and so it reads very easily and comfortably. But what it really reflects is the heart and motive for a people filled with generosity. These people are not doing this because they have to. It's not because they signed a contract or a covenant. It's not because they feel obligated. It is something that is flowing from a heart. It is flowing from a motive and a heart that is filled with generosity. And so here's my argument, or here's my thesis for today. For those of us who remember and keep close to our hearts the grace of God that has been shown to us, giving will become second nature. Let me say it again. For those who remember and keep close to their hearts the grace of God shown to them, giving becomes second nature. This is simply because true giving, hear that, true giving is the result of grace poured out in the heart of the giver. If you will, it is merely the splash of the grace that was and continues to be poured out into your heart and mine. It is the overflow. It is God pouring grace into our lives. And as we then begin to apprehend that grace and we begin to comprehend how deep and everlasting and full and mighty that grace is, it begins to develop in you and I a heart 
of generosity. And so we're going to approach the sermon very simply. First, we will let the story unfold, and I'll develop it as it's written. And then that will prepare us for the rest of the story next week, a story that is not quite as cheery. Second, we will then develop the theology behind the story in a very brief manner, but I hope that that will help you and I consider our conduct. And so with that in mind, let's discuss and learn together generous grace. Now, the first part of this story is what happened after Peter and John were released, where they were freed by the religious leaders after that stern warning, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Now, we know in verse 30 that they went back to the other apostles and that core group to report what had happened. We know that they then committed it all to the Lord in prayer and that God was working many amazing things through the apostles. So in the first part of verse 33, the apostles were then busy doing what they were supposed to be doing, and that is preaching and teaching. They, they were assuring the people that they truly had seen Jesus rise from the dead. They had seen the risen Lord. They had seen him ascend into heaven, and they were proclaiming this. So notice verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so as the people, this is not just to the church, this is what they were continuing to preach in the temple grounds, in the marketplaces, in the streets, and in the homes. They were continuing to preach and give witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the people would hear, and they were believing, and and both the saved and the non-saved who were now coming to faith were encouraged, strengthened, and saved. And in all of that, what we find is grace. We find great, abundant grace that was upon the people. Notice what verse 33 says. They were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and what? And abundant grace was upon them all. Now, where was that, or what is that talking about, that abundant grace? Well, for that, I want you to understand a bit more about that apostolic message. If you and I are going to ever be faithful to describe grace, we need to understand it, right? And so to understand grace and our response to it, you need to understand that the apostolic message preached in verse 33 is a non-negotiable. The resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, nothing is Christian. The Christian faith is not, beloved, a set of rules or morals. It is not a personal relationship with Jesus. It is not a series of activities or rituals. It's not a set of doctrine or teachings. It's not even a belief. Christianity, at its core, is about Jesus and what he did. Keep that in mind. The Christian faith is, at its core, Jesus and what he did. This is a message then that is preached, and it is a message that you and I are called to believe. But whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. It doesn't make it go away. We don't conform our message so that you will then accept it or believe it. The message cannot change. Christianity shall be Christianity whether or not anyone believes it. Because it's about a person, Jesus, and what that person actually did. And so what is the message? Well, the message is very simple. It is that Jesus is the promised one from the Old Testament, right? That he is God in human flesh. That he is known as the God-man. That he is truly God and yet truly man that he lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. He did what none of us have ever been able to do, and that is be sinless, right? And then he came for the purpose of dying. He didn't come to die in some empty 
act to show us how much he loved us or how important we are. Rather, it was to become our substitute. Hear that again. He came to die, but why did he die, beloved? He came to die to be our substitute. I remember teaching a while back here about this in a class that I and another was conducting, and the chapter was on the death of Christ and salvation, and, and when they, the people came back from the class or for the class and we were talking about it, I just opened it up with, well, what stood out for you in your homework, and, and what is it that you came to understand and maybe have questions about? And one woman said, you know, this substitute thing, that's really important. And I, I, I had to laugh. I'm like, yes, it is. She's like, yeah, but I've never heard that before. That's like really, really important. You need to know that. I'm like, you do? Do you know that? Do you understand that Christ is your substitute? That he took your place? That he died in your place? That is the whole idea of what the Christian faith is built around, that Jesus, God in human flesh, perfectly righteous, without sin, died in your place. Now, why? Why would he have to die, and why is that important? Well, because of sin, right? Sin is first and foremost in relationship always to God, always. Only secondarily will it be between you and I. Now, we do the exact opposite, though, don't we? We tend to think about sin on a horizontal level and not between man and God. And we generally will take sin and make it more focused toward us, not from us, unless you're different than me. We tend to think about how we got sinned against rather than how are we sinning, right? We tend to diminish what we're doing, and magnify what somebody else is doing to us. And the whole point of that is even if we start to think about how much we sin and do wrong against somebody else, um, we still tend to not focus on how much we sin against our maker and creator, the holy God. And yet sin is first and foremost always between us and God, Sin is this quality or power, the Bible describes, that dominates creation. And as a result, the Bible describes in the book of Romans that we are under sin. And it's a picture of domination, that we are under its its power, its constant influence. So it's one of dominion. And because of that power that's constantly pressing upon us and in us, that's important, in us as humans, we commit sin. So it's not that we are sinners because we did sin, but rather because we are by our nature sinners, we sin. So what is sin? Let me give you a quick definition. Sin, it's anything Anything, and that's very broad, anything that is opposed to the will of God or the character of God, or you could say it another way, anything that finds its greater joy or purpose to be other than God. When you take anything and place it before God, you have sin. Matt and I just did another Faith and Fable, and we talked about um, another spiritual motivator, and we described in there what is an idol. And you've heard this from me many times. It's, it's one statement I've said countless times. How do you know if you have an idol, right? How do you know if you have something, a false idol in your life? And you say, well, I don't have any, I don't think. The, the question is very simple. Will I sin to get it, or will I sin not to get it if I don't get it? Do I sin so I can get it, or will I sin if I don't get it? 
And at that moment, it reveals to you your heart. And you realize, my goodness, that John Calvin was correct when he said that our hearts are factories of sin. We spend our life that way. And that's what sin is. And so Buswell, Dr. Buswell in his theology describes sin this way. It is anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator. Now the effects, the effects of sin, if that's what sin is, what are the effects of that sin? Well, the Bible says it separates you from God. Sin makes us now rebels before God. It enslaves us to itself and makes it our master rather than God as our master, and the consequences then are death. Not just death in a physical sense, but in the eternal sense of hell and God's wrath, a separation in the fullest sense of the word from God's grace. And that, beloved, is why Christ came to die, right? We, this is basic Christian faith, and yet it's stuff that we forget. That's why Jesus came to die, to be that substitute for us. The Bible says that the soul that sins, what? Must die. The soul that sins must die. And we've all sinned. And so we must all die. Unless, unless one who had no sin becomes our substitute. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Because you and I have no hope, right? We have no purpose, no no ability to fix what we've already done. We might fix the rest of our life pretty good, but we can't fix what is already done. Yet Christ becomes that substitute. And that is what Jesus, that the God-man did. But, Death is not sufficient. That's why the resurrection is the cornerstone. The resurrection becomes then the most important part of the Christian faith, for in it we find the certainty that Jesus' death was acceptable to God, that it accomplished, in other words, what it was supposed to accomplish. Anyone can say, I'm going to die for your sin and rise again on the third day. Anyone can say that but you better rise, right? You better come back. Anyone can die for you. People have done that countless times. That's not the point. It was never Jesus says, I will die for you, that I will die in your place, I will be your substitute, and then that's it. He never said that. It was, I will die, and on the third day, I will rise again. The resurrection then tells us that God accepted Jesus' death. If God is holy and pure, and, and he is the Father, and Jesus says, my Father shall raise me from the dead, and he doesn't raise him from the dead, then it says that Jesus' death was not acceptable and that Jesus had lied. He invoked the name of his father, and the father raised him from the dead. That is why their witness is so important. It tells us then that God accepted Jesus' death, and therefore there's something better and bigger than this age, this world we live in. That the promise is true that Jesus gave all who hope in him alone life, and that he shall raise them from the dead himself. So that's what it means to be a Christian, to share in the hope, share in the certainty that Jesus is our perfect substitute, who took our sin and died our death on our behalf. The more you read the Bible, you'll start to see that substitutionary language everywhere. And the more beautiful it will become as you grow as a Christian and you realize that truly he took my place. 
But along with that, we also then testify and hold to the fact that the testimony of the, of the disciples, now the apostles, is that on the third day, he rose from the dead, and that is what they testify they saw, and that is what they were willing to die for, that testimony. And not only did he rise on the third day, but that he is coming to save those who hope in him, as well as judge those who do not. All of that is what verse 33, the first part, is talking about. That's what's happening in our passage. Verse 33 is simply a testimony that the teaching of the, of the teaching of the church, what they were about. The apostles had one core message. Jesus is the Lord, and it's because Jesus rose from the dead. So my question to you, is that your testimony? Is that where you begin and end in everything you are? Are you resting not in your skills and abilities and efforts, but you're resting in what Christ did on your behalf? Is he not only the perfect substitute who died in your place, but he is your life through his resurrection? Well, thousands of Jews in this story are believing that, and they're now following Jesus. And as this took place, they found themselves changed. They had a different outlook and a, and, and a different set of values. Now, why? Well, I know theologically why, because their heart was changed. Something radical. It wasn't just that they decided to follow Jesus and then their whole life continued as if nothing changed. Literally, their whole world was turned upside down and radically changed because they now believe Jesus was their master, that's what it means with when you say Jesus is Lord, that he is my master and my hope and my life. And there's a heart that goes with that. And so they had this different outlook and a different set of values, and that's what the book of Acts will continue to unfold for us. What I want you to notice is that last part of verse 33. So look down and remind yourself quickly again. It is of that abundant or great grace that was upon them all. So let me do a little bit more instruction here before we move on. What's grace? What's grace? Well, grace is understood by us as undeserved favor or kindness by God. It is the essence of why God saves anyone. In other words, none of us deserve it. None can earn it. No one is worthy of it. That God instead shows us infinite and eternal grace. Here's what I find many people do. In fact, Churches inadvertently do this and sometimes willfully do this. This is the whole basis for the Protestant revolution the Protestant uh, Reformation that took place in the 1500s, is that grace became, became something that was a transaction. Do you know what I mean by that? Grace becomes transactional. You do X, Y, and Z, and God will then give you grace. You get baptized as a baby, God will give you grace. You take the Holy Eucharist or the communion, God will give you grace. You get this, God will give you grace. So it's all, here is God removed from you. You then want grace, so you have to do X, Y, and Z, and you maybe do it a lot or a little, but as you do it, God will keep filling up your grace cup, if you will. But that is the exact opposite of what grace is. Grace is literally undeserved. Grace is in spite of you, God pours out his grace. And yet I watch people consistently exhaust themselves trying to figure out what must they do to earn God's grace and you can't put the word earn and grace together because you cannot earn what is unearned. Grace is how we're saved. Grace is why we're forgiven. 
We're not forgiven because we promised to do better. Yeah, how many of you have perhaps said that? The Bible says, for by grace you were saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? A gift of God. Not of works, lest any of you boast. For by grace. Well, that's what you actually see in verses 33 to 37. You see, grace is not only how you are saved, but grace then becomes the vehicle in which you walk for the rest of your life. And both of these is what we see in verses 33 to 37. So we start now in this passage. I think I've laid enough groundwork. Consider that sort of like your introduction. I think we can then work out the rest of the passage. We start with a very pleasant image of the generosity that comes from people who walk in true fellowship and love for God and one one another people who are aware that God has been incredibly gracious to them. He has poured out his love and kindness and mercies in every possible way to them. And they are apprehending that, and now they walk. So this grace is evident how. How do you know or see it? Well, it's seen in generosity. It's seen in a genuine concern for the needs of believers. So notice verse 34. I want you to notice how full it is. There was not, in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Not one needy person. Not one needy person. And remember, we're not talking about a couple hundred like here. We're talking about well over 10,000 people now. This church has exploded. And not one needy person. And we think of that and we, tra- we process that through the thinking of Americans and, we, and our idea of what needy really is, because it's really hard to find a genuinely poor individual here. And so we tend to dismiss this. But this was not written in an American context. It was written in a real-life context, if you will, how the rest of the world functions. Not one was needy. All had their needs met. So what do we do? What do we do if we are recipients of God's grace? Beloved, I would argue that we give. That's my argument. If you are a recipient of God's grace, then it will manifest itself in giving. God gave us who? Boy, I'd love to hear that name a little louder. He gave us Jesus. God gave us his Holy Spirit. God has given us in Ephesians every spiritual blessing. When you look at the grace of God, it always is seen in giving. It just is. Well, the same is for the young church. There were genuine needs that many were experiencing. We'll talk about why in a moment. And those who had the ability to help just simply did. There's nothing deep about this. They just saw that these people were struggling, and they said, we can fix that. So they did, over and over and over again. And the way this passage actually is constructed, I, won't, I don't want to bore you with the grammar, but the verbs here, the way they're constructed, it's called the imperfect. It indicates that there is this gradual liquidation of people's assets, Meaning that they would, as they saw the needs arise, as they saw that the money began to get lower, they would sell and replenish so that it would continue to take place. In other words, it's not talking about some sort of communism where everyone just, everyone becomes equal in some weird, strange way, nor was it some type of a communal cult. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 60s and 70s 
and, and remember how popular those types of cults were. Those of you with gray heads might recall them as well. And that you would sell all of your possessions and always magically you'd sign your money and possessions over to the leader of the cult. And they would then take it over and you would take a vow of poverty. That's not what's being done here. Understand that the decision to divest of your property was not in the hands of the apostles. So it wasn't somebody in charge telling you, hey, go sell your house, go sell your land. It was in the hands of the owners, the ones who were more wealthy and comfortable in the church. It was up to them, and on their own, they made that decision, I will do this. Not only that, but they gave the amount that they would give for the needs of the other believers was up to them. They could give some of the, of the money that they got from the sale, or they could give all of it. It wasn't mandated that you sell and then give it all then to the church. But you have to understand that poverty was a very real issue for the early church. It would become bigger as time went on, especially in Jerusalem. Many in this new entity called the church did not even have a home at all. Why? Well, because they had traveled from other countries long, long distances, multiple weeks, to come to Jerusalem to worship on the day of Pentecost. That's chapter 2 of Acts, right? And as a result, they had no place, no place that was home. Their home and their means to make money was in some other country. They didn't speak the local dialects. They weren't part of the Jewish culture, even though they were Jews. They were people who were living in Ethiopia, Arabia, and they were very different. They were the Hellenized Jews, is what they were called. And yet they came, and in God's grace, they happened to be there on the day of Pentecost when Peter gets up and he preaches the sermon and says that thousands were saved on that day. And as a result, they continue to come week after week and day by day, gathering together to learn more, having now come to faith and now becoming a Christian. But they had needs. They had problems. And so there's this great need that was upon them, and the burden was felt by everyone in the church. But you also have to understand that even those living in the surrounding areas or Jerusalem itself suffered, because now they followed this Jesus. And they can't deny him, and so now it's creating problems for them as well. Now imagine if you were a good, faithful Jew, and then all of a sudden you can't shut up about this guy that had been crucified, and you keep telling everybody that not only had he been crucified, but he did it in our place, and that God raised him on the third day. And you're finding out that the religious leaders are against you for this. All of a sudden, people are going to start to distance from you, become distanced from you. You're a potter, pot maker, or whatever you might do. You, you sow, you have a food stall, whatever it might be, and people stop buying your wares. It created real division in the households. Realize that in, in that culture, the family unit was far more defined than we would ever have. You have to live in a, a most any culture other than the Western culture to really appreciate the pressures being put on these people. If you are a son living in the house of your father and you have your grandfathers there as well, and the whole idea of honor and shame, you are creating all sorts of problems in your home. In fact, just keep your finger there and turn to Matthew 10 and just think about the, in this coming celebration of, of Christ's birth, think about what Jesus came to do. In Matthew 10, chapter 10, verse 32, everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. You have to confess Christ as Lord, right? But whoever shall deny me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
And then this is not what we talk about. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men is what we talk about. Jesus says, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies shall be the members of his household. Therefore, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he goes on. How often do you preach that for a Christmas sermon? (laughs) How often do you even contemplate that? How often have you perhaps been guilty of trying to hide your testimony of faith for the sake of peace in the home? Because you know it's going to create separation. Christ says you just don't get that option. That's not one of your options. You stand and fall with Jesus. Understand that he meant that, that he was going to separate. We talk about the Christian faith somehow is that, see, you come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Actually, there's every good chance that he'll separate your marriage. We just can't accept that. And we don't understand exactly how serious it is. And so we keep thinking that, there again, there's a way that we can believe in Jesus and follow him and call him Lord, but have no intention of following truly. Well, these new believers were not that way. And they were caught creating this division. Jesus is now Lord. He's your hope and priority, and that means everything in their life changes. And so in Acts, what you have is people who will no longer go to the temple to sacrifice, and that's bringing all sorts of shame to their family. They're telling everyone in their home that Jesus really is the promised one that they were waiting for. And this creates the division, and that brings financial problems. So what does the church do? It rises up and responds to it. Now, notice in verse 35, back in Acts, that this giving was a very public giving. They actually lay the money at the feet of the apostles. Can you picture that? They would come with their money and lay it at the feet of the apostles. Now, this is likely done at the temple area known as Solomon's portico or porch, a very large area. Uh, It was covered. It was a place where the people would normally gather to learn and instruct. So the early church throughout the week, and you had to come in groups because there's no way the thousands could fit, but you would come and you would be instructed there and the apostles would be seated. That was the typical way that in that culture they would teach. When you would sit, now it was time to instruct. In our culture, you stand, right? The same idea. But the people, as they came, they would come up to the apostles who were seated and they're teaching and people would just filter up and lay the money at their feet. And so I've always joked about that because some people are like, that's whacked. And we got, we got a way, we think that you're supposed to give. I'm like, well, if you really want to give like the early church gave, uh, we'll set up some chairs here and the elders can sit up and, and then there will be a designated time where all of you can come and drop your money off at our feet. I would feel awkward and I think you would agree. But it really shows a common misconception that we have. It's the idea that giving must be private and that no one ought to know what you give. Think about it. Some of you really firmly believe that. And usually it's from Matthew 6 and verses 3 and 4. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? So that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And so that's the passage usually that's told to me. But that passage is not actually about giving. It's, it's about religious hypocrisy and showing your righteousness before others. 
In fact, the verse just prior to that, Jesus says, don't be like the religious hypocrites who blow trumpets before they give so that they might be honored in the eyes of man. Rather, do it in secret. In other words, don't call attention to yourself. Just give. In reality, the New Testament consistently indicates that giving is part of the worship and it's a visible part of the people's act of worship. Now, the second half of verse 35 also shows then the distribution of the funds was not a private affair, but it was a task of the apostles. What do I mean? Well, giving was public, but so was the distribution. In, in our society, we're so individually oriented, and it's just part of what we are, it's our culture, that we think that, first of all, you have no business knowing what we're giving, right? And second, we'll give to who we want. In fact, many of you, you disperse your funds on your own, right? I'm not here to say this is the way we should do it or not. I'm just saying, many of you, your life is, I will decide how much I give, and it's nobody's business, and I will give where I want to give, and you disperse it over here and over there. And during the Christmas season, most of you are getting inundated. Now it would be with um, emails seeking that year-end donation. I think we just recently had something called Giving Tuesday. I still don't know what that is, but I also got slammed in my email box for Giving Tuesday. I don't know who invented that. Probably the same one who invented Valentine's. But it's a good idea, right? And it's up to me. It's my money. I'll give where I want to give. It's actually why the church here, us, meaning Miss Day, we have very few funds. Because we don't want you to be deciding, well, I'm only, I don't know if I like this or that, so I'm only going to give to this fund. And I'm going to essentially vote that way. Basically, the primary fund that you can really give here is the general fund, and then we disperse it where it's needed. Why do we do it that way? Is it because we think that we're more spiritual? No, but we do see that as the model within the New Testament. And this is one of them. You would not privately say, oh, Joe has a need. I'll sell my property and then go give Joe some money. See, that's how Americans would do it. For them, Joe has need for money because he has no job and no means to make the money. So I'm going to go sell my property. I'm going to take the money and give it to the apostles, and they will distribute that as it's needed. And this will become even more clear in chapter 6 of Acts. So it was done that way, and it actually created a problem that, again, is resolved in Acts chapter 8. Then we have the specific example of Barnabas in verses 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas. Now, from here on out, he'll always be known as Barnabas, so we'll call him that. Again, it's not done in some private, hidden manner. Luke has actually no problem reporting about what he does. So if giving was always to be done in secret, then Luke is already violating that by reporting it, and everyone for 2,000 years have known about what Barnabas did. Understand that Barnabas is not his real name. It's actually Joseph. If just uh, This is just free for you uh, trivia. Joseph was the second most popular name in the Jewish culture. The first and most popular name in the Jewish culture was Simon hence Simon Peter, just so you know. Barnabas is a nickname. He was a Levite. That means that he may have even worked at the temple in some way because only those who were of the tribe of Levi could do so. But he was also from Cyprus, which means that he was one, his family generations ago had been taken by force and relocated either under the Assyrian rule, the Babylonian rule, the Greek rule, or the Roman rule. But they lived and were raised in uh, Cyprus. What's more important, though, here is that Barnabas is introduced here, but he's going to become a key individual in spreading the good news throughout the Gentile world. That's you and I, everyone who's not Jew. 
He's the one who actually brings Saul, who then becomes the apostle Paul, to the other apostles after he's converted to Jesus Christ. So this is something Luke does all the time. He introduces a key character quickly, and then a few chapters later, he develops that person more fully. So here we have this man was wealthy, wealthy enough to have extra land, and he sold it for the care of other believers. And this sets up the story for Ananias and Sapphira, which is not such a happy story, and we'll look at that next week. Now, how much more time do I have? Five minutes, right? Huh. (laughs) With that in mind, let me quickly and briefly take you to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Someday I'm going to preach through this if I live long enough. It's actually a very difficult book. And I think it's misunderstood by people a lot. But then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So you already know I'm, I'm on some drug because there's no way I can get through two chapters, right? But we're going to try. I'm not going to read it. That would take up all of our time. I'm, I'm, what I want to do is now show you what we just did is a story. Now I want to show you in, a, in an instruction the same thing. Now I want you to see the same idea happening in the church at Corinth where Paul is instructing them about this heart of generosity that flows from God's grace. So in chapter 8, we're just going to go all the way through quickly. In verses 1 through 4, and I would encourage the small groups that you would just take maybe this and go through it more detail uh, as you meet. Maybe that will help you see what I'm getting at. But in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Paul is busy taking up an offering for the church at Jerusalem because they are now the poor ones. The whole church there, they've sold everything. There's no more money left, and they're under great persecution now. And so what he is doing is going out to the Gentile churches and taking up an offering, just like we're doing with the Lottie Moon. Uh, They're taking up an offering from all these churches to then he will bring to Jerusalem so that they can be taken care of. And so all these churches in the Gentile world are being challenged, give. And they're all promising in a very public manner how much they'll give. And there's a church in, the churches in Macedonia, uh, they're giving, he says, out of their poverty. Verse two, notice, the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They literally, he said in verse 3, gave beyond what was good for them. They didn't just give and say, well, that's not a big deal. They actually harmed themselves in their giving, and they did it with joy. Now, why do you think they would do that? Because of God's grace in their life. That's the only reason. They gave and it hurt them. They went without food maybe for a day or two for the the privilege in their mind of giving. In verses 8 through 9 then, he doesn't command, but he defines it in the gracious work of Jesus that abounded in their riches through forgiveness. So he says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. Now he's talking to the Corinthian church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. I can say the same of you, right? You know the grace of God that though he was rich, he became poor on your behalf. God's grace for you. That's what he's saying to them. And the reason he's saying this is that he knows the Corinthian church promised a large sum of money, and now they're having second guesses and second thoughts. They're like, "Mm, maybe we should hold a little back. And he's like, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Didn't you know what the Macedonia church is doing? And don't you know what God has done on his behalf for you? Then in verses 10 through 15, he reminds them that they started out being generous with their commitments, so now he challenges them 
to accomplish it. So they started well, but now the fear is kicking in. In 16 through 23, he explains that Titus is involved in the gathering of the money promised from the various churches. So he's like, now Titus is coming from town to town and city to city, and he's gathering all of these funds so that he can transfer them back. Now in chapter 8, verses 24, all the way to 9-5, he begins to lay it on thick. Therefore, I'm going to read this part because it's really thick. Therefore, openly, before the churches right? He's not saying secret. Don't let anyone know. He says openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. See, he's been talking them up. He's been telling the other churches, be like the Corinthian church. They're giving a lot to care for these poor. And he's like, prove it, prove it. For this reason, in verse 9, it's superfluous, that's a great word, for me to write to you about this ministry of the saints. I don't even need to, he's saying. Why? For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your, the Corinthian church, has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren, so that our boasting about you may, may not be made empty in this case that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. And so I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by what? covetousness. Good for you. That's what happens to us, right? Pastor starts talking about giving, (laughs) and it's like, oh, here we go. And covetousness honestly becomes the issue. It's like, how much can I afford? And this and that. It's cheap and easy to talk when we're having a cup cup of coffee at the local coffee shop and enjoying life and nothing. But here, Paul is saying to them is, look, there's every chance I'm going to be bringing some of these poor Macedonians with me, and I don't want you or I to be put to shame. So get ready. So I'm sending ahead these people to remind you of your gift and make certain that you're bountiful. Then in verses 6 through 11, he shows again his thinking. God blesses a heart of generosity. And generosity is by its very definition, definition what? Generous. Generosity is never hedging your bets, beloved. It's never hedging your bets. But it's also not generous to sound generous and then not follow through with it. So note in verse 11, so that you will be enriched in everything for what purpose? All liberality. What he's talking about is, look, in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. (coughs) That always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Paul is saying, and again, I don't have the time to develop this. It would be multiple weeks. He's saying, do you not understand that your ability to make funds and money and to acquire them is purely God's grace? And and I'm asking you, do you believe that? Do you understand that it has nothing to do with your mad skills? There are people in other countries that I have met who are far smarter than you and I and far harder workers, and they literally live on the ground. It is the grace of God and only the grace of God that you possess anything. And he says, do you not understand that God is the one who will give you the abundance? Whatever that abundance is, he'll give it to you. Live in that way. Live not 
riotously and just spend your money as fast as you make it because it doesn't really matter because, hey, I work hard for this. He says, no, spend it generously and God will abundantly meet your needs, however that might be. And that's what he's saying again. You will be enriched in everything. For what purpose though? Not for the second home and the long vacation and the newest cars and the fanciest this or that. It's for all liberality, which will then produce thanksgiving. We say a little bit more. And then we'll give. And God keeps saying, give, and I will then multiply as I see fit. Why did you receive maybe raises this year? Some of you might be already expecting a bonus at the end of the year. Why? What, 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 what is your mindset of why did God grant me the ability to work for a company that's now going to give me a 10% bonus at the end of this year because of the company performance? Is it because of, again, your mad skills? Or did God enrich you for generosity? What is the purpose for which you make money? We wait until we have enough. God says we ought to, though, give out of a heart of generosity and then wait upon God to refill as he decides. This is the idea that Jesus calls storing your treasures where? In heaven. He literally forbids you to store it on the earth. He literally forbids it. In verses 12 through 14 then of chapter 9, it brings us to the heart. So let me read this. In verse 12, he's saying this. As we give, it is not merely to help the needs of the other believers. It actually is all about worship. So for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. See, it's not only that. It's not just because the saints need it but it is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. See, it's, it's this vertical. Why? Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God. Who? The, the church in Jerusalem. They're going to glorify God. Why? For your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing what? Generosity? No. The surpassing grace of God in you. It's the weirdest thing. There are people who literally have no ability to give. They're just destitute. And we give and we meet their needs brothers and sisters struggling and suffering, people who have needs. Some of them are not radical. It's just, I don't have enough money to meet this goal or desire. And others come alongside and meet it. And they supply what is lacking in your life through their prayer. They, they thank God. You become now a, a point of joy for them as they think of your generosity in their life. And in return, you have the joy as you meet the needs that continues to take care of them. And so at the end, he says, thanks be to God for his, not our generosity, but for his indescribable gift. Paul is not thanking the Corinthians for their generosity. He thanks God for his generosity. So what we have in this passage is a reminder that we do not exist alone or in some vacuum. We are vitally connected to one another, but not through a common heritage or language or national identity. Rather, our interconnectedness is all through Jesus Christ. We have a fellowship in this. We share in the Spirit. We have this common faith that we share. So that brings us then to the challenge of us that we are truly responsible for one another. And that ought to move us to seek to share and support our brothers and sisters in need. Now, beloved, you can give for many reasons, and you can give and withhold for many reasons. The Bible says, though, that 
a thankful heart that is fully aware of the generosity of God toward you and I will compel you to be generous as well. I want you to grasp that. Your generosity is a reflection of how you view God's grace. Wrap that around your head. That's not me. That's just simply what the Bible is saying. You reflect God's grace in your generosity. Now, next week, we're going to see two people who give the external appearance of generosity, but their heart was covetous. So what do I ask you to do? I ask you simply, consider the gospel. Consider the riches of God's grace toward you. And then reflect on how you reflect that in generosity. Let's pray. So Father, nothing strikes more at the core of the American heart than money. I I give you the message. I give you the confidence because in your word is much blessing and encouragement and instruction. I pray that as we now go home and consider how we give and what we give and why we give, as we think about this coming season where we pour out gifts upon those who have no need and we ignore the ones who have genuine need, I pray that you'd open our eyes to that, consider our ways before you as those who name the name of Christ, and claim to be recipients of the fullness of your grace. Teach us to walk humbly before you. Let us not be Ananias and Sapphira, seeking to show a level of godliness that's not really there. But let us be like Barnabas, simply a faithful man. We trust you. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness. We ask in your son's holy name. Amen.